This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. I recognize many of you. Thank you, Kodo, and, and thank you to Nancy for uh, inviting me to speak today. Uh, the title of my talk uh, for today is, <clears throat> What is the Body? What, what is the body? Did you ever think, you know, what, what is the body? One doesn't think, you know, of this. I'm with my, uh, these days, <clears throat> with my seven-year-old granddaughter. She's very lively. She has a flexible, energetic body. I don't think she thinks, what is the body? She's too busy doing things, as are most of us. Uh, when we get a little older, I think we start wondering, what is this body? When we notice that it doesn't work uh, automatically, uh, that it doesn't do what it used to do, uh, that it needs more attention, and, and that uh, we can't entirely rely on it. And we're beginning to, to realize that. So what is the body is a good question. And it makes me think of the uh, case in the Blue Cliff Record where uh, two monastics are attending a wake and uh, one raps on the coffin and says, uh, alive or dead, what is this body that formerly we call the person and now what is it? And the other monastic, uh, his teacher says, uh, I won't say, I won't say. And then there's the story uh, in the Hidden Lamp collection uh, of the seven women in the charnel ground. The seven women, it's springtime, and the seven women uh, want to go and view the spring flowers. And one of them says, no, let's go to the charnel ground. And the others say, well, why would we go there? And, and she says, uh, good things can be seen there. And they go to the charnel ground and they see a corpse. And immediately they say, what is it? What is this body? And on raising that question with full hearts, they all become awakened. So good question, what is the body? Notice that in these Zen stories, uh, no answer is proposed as to what the body is. And yet uh, raising the question uh, fully with body and heart and mind is a really good thing. Uh, we 
couple of weeks ago finished a session uh, at one of our everyday Zen communities, the Red Cedar Zen community in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, we always have a session in mid-June there. We have a lovely place to have this session, a beautiful uh, island. Uh, you can see my, uh, you know, islands all around and there's egrets flying overhead and some eagles, it's a beautiful place. This year, all we could do is remember what a beautiful place it is because we were on Zoom. Everybody was at home doing the session. But we practice as we usually do, uh, returning awareness over and over and over again for, for seven full days to the body. What is the body? To the breathing. The breathing is the body, the breathing throughout the body. The sounds, sensations, thoughts coming and going. Isn't all of it the body? What thought is there going to be without the body? What body is there going to be without the breath? And in a seven-day session, you know, you really experience how it comes, how it goes, how it comes, how it goes, how none of it is really graspable. And you, and you can appreciate with the support of session, with the support of the practice in the pervasive atmosphere of Dharma. You can appreciate coming and going and you can find it uh, delightful, peaceful. Every day we chant the Heart Sutra all dharmas are empty. All dharmas are characterized by emptiness. They don't appear or disappear. They don't come or go. They're not pure or impure. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. All dharmas are insubstantial, fleeting. We, we're here, we say, to one another, we believe we're here, but in, in a certain way, we're not here. We're certainly not here in the way we think we're here. And as I say, you, you appreciate this more and more, the older you get. And, and if you think about the quickly appearing end of your body's time to be conscious and to be held together in this form. You, you wonder, what is the body? What is the journey of the body? What is the path of the body? What is the fate of the body? And, and it's not just the body, because the body is not <clears throat> somehow walled off 
by its skin from all of physical reality. It's the whole of physical reality. How strange and how marvelous an opportunity to be so uh, briefly, so wonderfully, so sensually alive. I, I really, I really think that it's sad we spend most of our lives uh, simply enwrapped in a host of assumptions, unexamined assumptions that if we examine them, we would be amazed at the marvel of this life. Uh, in that <clears throat> session I, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, Bob Rose, who's one of our stalwart members of the Sangha up there in the Red, Red Cedar Sangha, I must have been talking about the body in one of my Dharma talks there, I don't remember exactly, but uh, he said, oh, do you remember the poem of Robert Creeley, The Plan is the Body? And I said, no, I, I don't remember that poem. It's such a great poem, uh, you, you know, send it to me. I had forgotten. So he sent me the poem and I'll read it for you now. It's a, it's a marvelous poem, Robert Creeley is one of the great American poets of the 20th century one of my absolute favorite poets. Every time I read a Robert Creeley poem, I'm amazed all over again, and I want to write a poem just as good, and I, and I never have. Here's his poem. The plan is the body. <clears throat> the plan is the body. There is each moment a pattern. There is each time something for everyone. The plan is the body. The mind is in the head. It's a moment in time, an instant, second. The rhythm of one and one and one and one the two, the three, the plan is in the body. Hold it an instant in the mind, hold it. What was said, you said, the two, the three times in the body, hands, feet, you remember, I, I remember, I speak it, speak it. The plan is in the body. Times you didn't want to, times you can't think you want to, you, me, me, remember, me, here, me wants to, me am thinking of you. The plan is the body. The plan is the body. The sky is the sky. 
the mother, the father. The plan is the body. Who can read it? Plan is the body. The mind is the plan. I speaking the memory gathers like memory plan. I thought to remember thinking again, thinking the mind is the plan of the body. The plan is 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 the body. Kodo kindly mentioned uh, my just out book, uh, When You Greet Me, I Bow. You know, it's, uh, as you know, you know, Zen priests are really not supposed to write books. It's frowned on. It's a little embarrassing to write, write as many books as I write. But I guess I can't help it. Anyway, one of the essays in that book is the plan is the body, or rather, what is the body? Not the plan is the body. What is the body is one of the essays in the book. <clears throat> and I'm going to share some words from that essay with you this morning. But first, I'll just explain a little bit about how this book came to be. <clears throat> I write uh, a lot of essays for the Buddhist magazines, mostly for the former Shambhala Sun, now the Lion's Roar. And it's because uh, Melvin McLeod, who's the editor of that magazine, always asked me to write stuff. He says, you know, we're doing an issue on this. Could you write about that? And I said, I, I probably have something I can think of to write about that. So I published a lot of essays in that and other Buddhist magazines and other magazines that are not particularly Buddhist magazines. And one time, uh, I, I, I remember recently that it was in the men's room. We were at some kind of Buddhist conference there was a time when there was a lot of Buddhist conferences. I think there maybe are less now. But anyway, we we're at some Buddhist conference in the men's room and, and Melvin said, you know, you should collect uh, all your Buddhist essays. You've got so many of them. You should collect them in a volume. And I said, yeah, that'd be a good idea someday. And I, and I forgot about it and many, many years went by. And uh, it occurred to me to, to take up that suggestion, but the effort to collect all these essays wherever they were, they were all over the place, you know, and I wasn't sure exactly you know, where they were or what I had published. It seemed like a big job and it was just discouraging to do all that. And then one of our Sangha members, Cynthia Schrager, who's a, who's a brilliant reader of texts, she's got her doctorate in English and uh, really is a great reader, knows how to read and see what's in the text, you know, more, more than the author, I think. So she said, I would, I would really enjoy doing that. So she became the editor of this volume and she found all the stuff that I had published, including stuff that was you know, not available on the internet, had been written 
long before there was an internet. She found it all, put it all together, and uh, selected about half the essays as being worth republishing. And then she uh, figured out that there were uh, themes, you know, that uh, put the essays into different thematic baskets. And I had never kind of thought about that. But she said, no, here are the things that you've been thinking about for the last 40 years. As I read your essays, here are, here are the things you've been thinking about. So that the book is organized into four categories that Cynthia figured out. And, and here, I didn't know, you know, what I'd been thinking about. So here's what she figured out I've been thinking about for 40 years or more. First of all, uh, the first category is relationship. Uh, I didn't begin practicing Zen thinking about relationship, but as I practiced for a long time, you know, I realized that Zen practice is together practice. We practice together more than the other Buddhisms, I think. Zen really is together practice. And the emphasis in Zen, when you analyze the Zen stories and what they're about, the emphasis is in a way, you know, less on awakening per se than it is on communication of and sharing of awakening. So really at its root, uh, Zen actually proposes that awakening itself is relationship. A moment arises and in that moment, it doesn't exist without relationship. So in all of its different forms, I write about relationship. That's the first section. The second section is emptiness. The emptiness teachings that I referred to a moment ago have always been really, really important to me. And they are the foundation of all of Mahayana Buddhism and of Zen. So I've done a lot of writing about the emptiness teachings, which really are the underlying foundation of relationship because relationship means not only two in relation it also means there is no one to be in relation with the second there's just the one in relation to itself so it's empty of any separation so i did a lot of writing about it the emptiness teachings in different ways. The third category is, is culture. So I've been, you know, really as, as someone who started practicing Zen uh, in the very, very beginning of Zen practice uh, in, in the West, I've really been aware of us trying to understand and inevitably misunderstanding a uh, teaching that comes to us from another culture, from another language, very different from our own. And so the the phenomenon of, of cultural borrowing and cultural exchange and the culture of Zen has been something that I've been writing about. So the third category is culture and the fourth is engagement. Um, that's why when, when I retired from the Zen Center in, in 2000, I uh, wanted to call my new organization the Everyday Zen Foundation 
because um, our practice really in the West is not about really for us, for most of us, you know, we're not terribly concerned about, some of us are, but most of us are not terribly concerned about preserving the Zen tradition per se. We're really concerned about our lives and how to make the tradition be of service, not only to our lives individually, but to our collective life in the world. So engagement in various guises has been one of my subjects, it seems. And I've written surprisingly about a whole bunch of stuff. Like I wrote an essay about trying to understand what was the religious motivation of the 9-11 terrorists. I wrote a lot about Israel-Palestine, which unfortunately uh, you could write about, you could have been writing about for the last 50 years and you'll write about for the next 50 years probably. And other, many other things, uh, feminism, uh, racism and other issues. So those are the four um, topics that I've been writing about, four uh, categories into which the book is divided, relationship, emptiness, culture, and engagement. And, and then Cynthia had a great idea, which uh, I resisted at first until she explained it to me and made it sound better. She said, well, why don't you write, so that there'll be some new writing in this book, uh, why don't you write um, reflections? notes you know on these essays in each batch you wrote them a long time ago maybe you don't agree with yourself anymore or maybe you have you know something further to say so you could write notes about each of the sections and that would bring some new writing into the book and i said oh well i don't know if i don't have to write a you know serious polished essay but i can just write notes informal notes that'd be that'd be easy so i did that i wrote informal notes to each section and, uh, and, and that was kind of interesting because, I mean, uh, this is one of the problems with writing and publishing is that you said something 35 years ago and now you're supposed to defend what you said 35 years ago. Well, you were a different person, you know, and the world was different. The context was different. And yet there it is, you know, in print and you have to answer for it. So I was able to write notes reflecting on how different actually the context is in 2020, 2021, when I wrote these notes uh, from when I wrote the original pieces uh, as far back as the early 90s. Anyway, uh, the essay, What is Your Body, uh, appears uh, in, under the section on emptiness. And I'm going to read for you, uh, not the whole thing, but a little bit from that essay. And it, and it was published in 2013. What is your body? We think about our body all the time. How does it look? What's its state of health? Is it aging? Is it strong, attractive, impressive enough? And these questions that are always at the back of our minds churn out an almost endless stream of thinking, feeling, and spending. 
Consider all the clothing, beauty products, food products, accessories, books, equipment, therapists, health products, body work, body workers, and so on that make up a serious part of our economy. Thank God we're obsessed with our bodies. The economy would collapse if not. And, and you know, it is really true, isn't it? Everything, absolutely everything depends on the body. Without the body, you know, what are we? We're nothing. And when you think of these wonderful, noble, inspiring, transcendent concepts like consciousness, higher self, soul, goodness, enlightenment, Buddha nature. What are these things? Are they just made up fantasies? Are they expressions of our hopes? Do they exist at all? And if they do, they also depend on the body, don't they? So the body really is important, and yet we don't know what the body is. What is the body? We take it for granted, just like we take the sky and the earth for granted. Yet just like the sky and the earth, the body is much more than we know, much more subtle and connected. When we think, what, what we think of as our body, what we feel, imagine, and dream about, what we unthinkingly assume the body to be, is not what the body is. And then, you know, there's you and me, you know, ourselves, which it would appear are not the body. Because we say, my body. Well, who is that person who possesses that body? Where, where is that person? How could that person be outside the body? And yet we feel that it's my body. It's not, I am not the body. It's my body. Who says my body? Couldn't say it without a tongue, without a brain. And so from what perspective are we viewing our body? Are we viewing it from inside, peering out from the body's eyes or from the outside? As if looking in the mirror, it's like seeing a portrait in a portrait gallery. But the body couldn't be external to itself. The body must be contained in the experiences of looking and thinking. So what in the world are we referring to when we say my body as if it were a thing, not us? Maybe the body is the flow of its sensory experiences, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, tactile sensation. But when you analyze that, you know, it's also becomes strange because where do these things occur? Does taste occur on the tongue? Does it occur in the thing tasted? Is it just a mental experience in the brain? 
And then there's this other thing that we call, if it's a thing, probably isn't, that we call uh, awareness. What's that? That insubstantial, apparently non-physical procedure through which anything we experience comes to us. So where would the awareness be? Is it like floating around the body? Is it in the air around us? Is it in space? It's inside the body, is it? If it's inside the body, then we could never say my body. And there wouldn't be anyone outside the body to say mine. So then awareness is outside the body, but that seems completely impossible. In other words, it's very strange and we, we can't really say. And the more we look, the more elusive it gets. And yet, awareness is foundational to experiencing oneself as a person at all. No awareness, no smelling, no tasting, no thinking, no you. There could be a lump of flesh in the shape of a human body. But if there's no awareness there, there's no one who has a body. In the, in the Buddhist uh, analysis of consciousness called Abhidharma, they thought about these things very carefully. And although they did not have uh, what we call objective science and instruments of measurement and so forth, they had a very powerful subjective science and they could examine human experience from the inside. And they discovered that there is no body per se, only a variety of momentary mental events that they undertook to categorize into its various baskets. Some of them we would think of as physical, but they were not considered to be physical by the Abhidharmas. They were considered to be also consciousness. And think about it, you know, if in that red cedar session, I'm sitting there and I have a pain in my back, <clears throat> I say, there's something wrong with my back. My back hurts. Maybe I need to adjust my posture. Maybe it's just my, you know, my various discs that are herniated and causing my back trouble. But the truth is, it's not my back. The pain in your back is a mental sensation. It's an event occurring within awareness, possibly triggered by a basis in what we would call physical reality. But what's important about that pain and why it's a pain is because it is a mental and an emotional event. All perceptions 
are either stimulated by what we call a physical basis or a non-physical basis. But the physical basis is just another form of consciousness, a much more slow form of consciousness. So the Buddhist, Buddhist analysis is that there is no body as we would understand it, and that partly our suffering comes from our misconception of self and body and how they relate. But let's be honest, the idea that we have a body is really strong and not to be overcome by some intellectual sleight of hand, right? Beyond my misinterpretation of my personal experiences, the idea of the body is reinforced by the social discourse we have all grown up with. We all agree that we all have bodies and there's no doubt about it. So you know, everything, every conversation, every, every interaction with another person reinforces this idea. Our whole system of language <clears throat> is based on the metaphor of the body, which really is a metaphor. Most of our feelings and commonplace ideas about our lives are based on the metaphor of the body the metaphor of the body is a thought so foundational to us that we can't even begin to know how to question it. So now we zoom back a few thousand years and now it's the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. Mara, the evil one, did not want the Buddha to awaken because Mara's Tricksterism depends on the illusion of the body and all of the kind of human delusions and illusions. He didn't want anybody clearing this up. So what did Mara do to try to dissuade the Buddha from awakening? The Mara, Mara realized that the most persuasive thing would be to attack the Buddha on the basis of the body. So the first thing Mara did was to tempt the Buddha with various positive, pleasant aspects of the body. So, you know, beautiful women and, you know, food and all kinds of sensual delights. Why get awakened, Buddha? Just enjoy yourself. You have the capacity to enjoy yourself. Don't, don't bother with awakening. When that didn't work, uh, Mara then used the opposite tack. Let's threaten the body. Let's scare the Buddha uh, out of awakening. So then all the demons and arrow shooters and club wielders appeared to threaten the Buddha. But again, the Buddha was not dissuaded from awakening. And Mara said, look at all this and all these minions behind me, the tempters, and the destroyers, these are my forces countervailing against your awakening. What are your forces? And the Buddha then, in one of the most famous moments in his story, touches the earth 
and we see many beautiful Buddha statues with the Buddha touching the earth with one hand. And Buddha says, those are your minions, and here is my support. I don't think he just meant the goddess who protects the earth. He was saying, the earth is my body. My body expresses earth, is produced and supported by earth, is made entirely of earth elements. And so nothing on earth, no matter how frightening, can threaten this indestructible earth body, even if it is broken up into a million pieces, it will remain going home to its mother who gave birth to it, who embraces it now and will always embrace it. So there is nothing to fear ever. And with that, really the rest was easy. And the Buddha awakened and we remain grateful for that moment to the present day. <clears throat> In the Mahayana Sutras, they talk about three bodies of the Buddha. The Dharmakaya body, truth body, is, is beyond measure. It's all-encompassing. It's perfect. It's beyond perception and concept. The Sambhogakaya, the enjoyment body, the purified, perceivable body of perfect meditation and teaching. This is the body that's depicted in all the statues we see of Buddha. And finally, the Nirmanakaya, the transient historical body that appears in our world for the purpose of teaching worldly beings like us, a regular person Buddha. In Zen teaching, it's axiomatic that the ordinary human body that can be accessed in meditation practice, when we breathe, when we feel its sensations, when we're sitting silently, that ordinary body is itself beyond the ordinary corruptible human body. Dogen says the true body is far beyond the world's dusts. And Hakuen, in his famous song of Zazen, says this very body is the body of Buddha. And now we have some 300 or more years of science studying the human body <clears throat> and discovering that truly it is <clears throat> an amazing phenomenon. How much we know now, which points to us, how much we don't know. I mean, the brain, for instance, how could the brain, you know, regulate this complex organism so perfectly? If anything goes wrong, the brain will adjust. 
to all sorts of contingencies, produces thoughts, the brain does, literary works, skyscrapers, giant cities, social systems, the heart, the lungs, the cells, the DNA, the enormous knowledge and complex communication and movement that seem to occur effortlessly within every human body. My seven-year-old granddaughter walks, runs, jumps, shouts, sings, plays the piano. 25,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body, which if you stretch them out end to end would go around the globe. Every minute blood flowing through these vessels, nurturing the body, renewing the body, letting go of everything extra in the body. The human body is a marvelous thing and nobody figured it out. It was not created by artificial intelligence on a computer. There are no patents for it. You know, nobody owns the intellectual property of the body. Isn't that marvelous? It's totally free, this body. Nobody knows how it got here. Nobody knows where it's going. And then, never mind the body, but the consciousness associated with this body is, we're, we have no clue. No clue. But in our practice, especially in Soto Zen, which is such a simple-minded practice, there's nothing fancy about our practice. We just sit there and breathe, you know, and be, be there with our life. It's very physical practice, you know, even down to, as you all know from going to Zazen instructions, here, here's how you walk in the room. Here's how you hold your hands. You don't just plop yourself down on your cushion as if it were nothing. You bow to the cushion. You pay attention to your body the minute you enter the zendo through sitting and afterward. And when you're given zazen instruction, you're really mostly told about your, your spine and your mudra and your breath. There's very little doctrine or spiritual ideas to be incorporated into the practice. Dogen's entire spiritual, so to speak, instructions for Zazen is something like think, not thinking. Pretty much that's all he says. Just sit. So I'll finish with the last paragraph of the essay. I've been skipping around and not exactly reading, but sort of reading the essay. Here's the last paragraph. One of the deepest themes in Western philosophy, beginning with Plato, probably before Plato, is that the world of appearance is not real. How could this world in which everything's falling apart 
be fundamentally real. That's what they thought. There must be something else that is fundamentally real. And that's the job of the intellect, which is associated with the spirit. To carry us beyond this passing physical world to a perfected world of non-material form, purely mental or spiritual. And that's what Plato thought philosophy would, would do. And that was, was the task of philosophy and of religion. The kingdom of God, you know, is beyond this corrupt world. And this was the content, this was the theory behind all of Western thought in various ways, all the way up until the 20th century, when phenomenology, perhaps in part under the influence of Buddhism, which never did have a mind-body split like we've always had in the West, <clears throat> began to break it down. And that was in the mid, mid, middle of the 20th century. So in our earth-threatened time, when we must think and care about the future well-being of the planet, it is fitting that we begin to learn and enact the truth that has always been engraved on our very skins, that body, mind, spirit, and earth are one expression, one concern, and one delight. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.